Greater Good Radio. I use as a rule of thumb that I'm trying to get about five times my money in three years or ten times my money in five years. Hi, we can design your home in one minute or less. Inspire. Inspire. If you are doing your passion on a daily basis, then you're never going to have to work a day in your life. Greater Good Radio, brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, fiercely loyal banking. Welcome to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to the promotion and implementation of social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Evan Leong, and with me is my co-host, Carrie Leong. Today's show is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, fiercely loyal banking. Thank you, Evan. Today's guest is one of the founding fathers of the video game market. In 1983, he developed the first role-playing game in Japan called Black Onyx. He later negotiated for Nintendo both the handheld and console rights to Tetris, which has helped sell more than 35 million units of just Nintendo Game Boy Tetris, nearly half to adults. Recently passing the 70 million units sold mark, Tetris is the world's most popular computer game. Blue Planet Software majority owner, by our guest, currently holds exclusive intellectual property management rights to the Tetris. His company, Blue Lava Wireless, was acquired by Jamdat in April 2005 for $137 million. Let's welcome entrepreneur Hank Rogers. Welcome to our show, Hank. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got started in the video game industry? All right. Uh, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, how I got started in uh, the video game business is I used to be a, uh, a gamer back at the University of Hawaii, um, and my major was computer science. Back then, uh, computers were huge machines that sat in rooms, and gamers were um, guys that hung out at the campus center, and the two didn't quite meet. Um, it took six years for personal computers to come into the world, and I saw my chance to combine my my passion for gaming uh, and my ability in programming and put those together. I, I happened to be in Japan, and so I was there when I wrote my first computer game. What kind of games were in the market around that time? In Japan, uh, what was in the market uh, at the time uh, were action games, um, what can I say? Uh, was it like around Pong or Donkey Kong or what no, stage no, no. was it? No, <laughs> no, it was, it was after that. They had adventure uh -huh. games. Uh, they had uh, little shooting games. It was just, it was after Space Invader and Pac-Man. So Atari was already out. Well, this is Japan, so Atari mm -hmm. was never in. Oh. They were okay. talking about Japan. Uh, at that time, there were personal computers starting to happen, but we'd never seen an Atari boom in Japan, for example. So the games that were there was everything that we saw here in the U.S. except for role-playing games, which is why I decided, hey, this is my chance. What does that take when you write it, your own game? I mean, you programmed it what you learned from the university, or was it you learned it kind of on the side? Um, well, the, the, the language that I used I had learned at the, at the University of Hawaii. Uh, that was BASIC. But then uh, BASIC is a very slow language for writing computer games. So all the bits that had to be done uh, faster, I had to write in assembler or machine language. And so I had to learn that as I was going along. 
Did you travel to Japan to do more of your gaming or to find newer mm. things? No, and I, when I originally moved to Japan, I moved there uh, two reasons. My uh, family was living there, meaning my parents and brothers. Uh, they had moved there uh, before. And uh, the straw that bro- broke the camel's back for me is I uh, fell in love with a Japanese girl. <laughs> That'll do it. Okay, so can you tell us more about Blue Lava Wireless? And then and jam that and how that kind of came about. Well, okay. First of all, blue blue lava wireless. The story there is uh, my other business, which is Blue Planet Software, is in the business of licensing Tetris around the world uh, to anybody or any company that has a good plan and enough money to to do it. Uh, we licensed Tetris to a Japanese company for the market of cell phones or mobile phones in Japan. And they had a they had a very uh, interesting plan. Their plan was to have Tetris and and uh, a few other games. And because Tetris was the biggest game on Game Boy, they figured they could be the biggest uh, game company on mobile phones. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. They mm-hmm. were the number one company uh, in Japan and have been ever since. And they went public and made a lot of money. And that was uh, how can I say? They started probably five years ago. So two years into it, I could see, I could read the writing on the wall that they were going to be successful. And I started looking for someone in the U.S. to do the same kind of thing. I was, so who's going to be my uh, company that I'm going to license to in the United States? And I, I looked around, and it didn't feel like anybody got it. They, they didn't see how big this business was going to be. So nobody made uh, us an offer that was really interesting enough for us to say, nah, you know, uh, to take it. So... Uh, I decided to do it myself. So that was the start of Blue Lava. And uh, I decided to do it in Hawaii because, uh, well, I have uh, a lot of friends in Hawaii. I went to UH. And uh, I've always wanted to create an opportunity for young people to be able to stay in Hawaii instead of having to move to the mainland after studying computer science you know, at one of the universities here. Um, so I set about to form a team in Hawaii uh, to make games for mobile phones. Three years later, we had uh, several companies uh, bidding to buy us out. Uh, we were probably at that point in time the most profitable uh, company in that industry. So any company that, that's either public or that needs the additional um, profit, uh, which means that we become accretive, would be interested in, in buying us. How did that come about, though? Do, they, do you hunt these people down, or they, they just hear about you, and then they all come at one time for some reason? Either How do you create this kind of it, bidding process? It, hap- it happens both ways. Um, we decided, I decided that, that uh, I was going to sell the company at some point in time. Uh, why? Um, the, the choices of getting out of a company is either sell your company or do a pu- uh, an IPO, initial public offering. And initial public offering means 20 years hard labor you know after you've Mm -hmm. gone ipo you're responsible to wall street and all your investors and so on and it's a really it it kind of takes the fun out of the business because you're so focused on your shareholders and not so much focused on making fun games and you know i'm my background is i'm a game designer and i i I enjoy the fun part and i don't enjoy the uh how can i say the the work part of it Mm -hmm. (laughs) so uh um, basically, I, I chose that as my exit strategy. Now, how do I go about it? You, you know, I decided the timing, the timing for selling the company would be when 
companies started going public in my sector. And the first three public, the first three companies in any new sector generally are the ones that make the most money. And if you go public like four, number four, number five, number six, it, you know, there's a diminishing return. The first guys make all the money and they get big and they get strong and they have a lot of cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Jamdat went public and there were a number of other companies that were going to go public. So there were three candidates. There were two public companies and one pu- company that was about to go public saying, okay, well, we, we give you shares in our company. When we go public, you're going to make a you know, huge amount of money when we go public. And those three companies basically um, negotiated, and we ended up with Jandat. So is the idea for these public companies that once they raise all this capital from becoming a public company, they start acquiring everyone in sight? Um, they start acquiring companies that are basically that would make them more profit than they're making now. Okay. So if, if, uh, if I'm making 20% profit and I buy a company that's got 25% uh, profit, then that company has a chance of making my profitability look better. And profitability being better is something which drives up the stock price. So yes, people, if you can make money or increase your profits by buying a company, then it's absolutely the thing to do as a public company. You're listening to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to the promotion and implementation of social entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Hank Rogers, the owner of Blue Planet Software, which controls the rights to the video game Tetris. Hank sold his company Blue Lava Wireless in April 2005 to Jamdat for $137 million. He's here today to share with us how he achieved financial success at such an early age. So how did you keep your employees intact and as well as yourself? Because a lot of times when they buy a company, the previous owner ends up doing right. something else. Um, the, as far as the employees is concerned, um, I, 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 from the get-go, said I wouldn't consider any offers from any company that wasn't going to keep an operation in Hawaii. So that's the, that's the how can I say... That's the bottom line for me. I wouldn't have sold a company to a company that wasn't going to do that. So I got assurances from each of the three companies that they would keep the, uh, keep the group here. The, why, the, why the group survives in Hawaii uh, is really up to the group, though. We um, formed a team, and we are one of the best teams in the entire industry. And I, I, you know, from the get-go, we, we got together and said, what is it going to take for us to be able to stay in Hawaii? And what it's, what it's going to take is us being able to prove to everybody else that it can be done in Hawaii, and it can be done better in Hawaii. And there's no reason why it can't be done better in Hawaii. So we compete with everybody else in the world. Um, and so there's nobody uh, else, no other development group that is as good at making versions of Tetris as we are. And okay. so there's nobody that's buying us thinking, hey, maybe we should find a cheaper place to make it or something like that, because we were the most profitable business before we got bought. Is your group um, comprised of your friends that you went to UH with, that you um, did gaming with? No, I, actually, there's only one of those. Oh. I mean, everybody is young. <laughs> My friends uh, uh, that I went to UH with are, are, are all, I guess, middle-aged now, <laughs> since I'm middle-aged. <laughs> um, I, I do have one good friend that's still uh, from those days. We, we had a group called, uh, it was called ARG. And it's A-R-R-G-H, and uh, it's the Alternative Recreational Realities Group of Hawaii. And we used to play uh, role-playing games, Dungeons & Dragons, when it first came out. And so one of the 
one of the guys working with me in Blue Lava is uh, my dungeon master, and he's huh. our lead game designer today. So, uh, but then everybody else is pretty much, uh, uh, you know, under twenty-five. So, so you're uh, training most of these these people pretty much from scratch. They come out with a degree, but I mean, you're right? Training I mean, everybody, them. everybody, we we judge them on on uh, their ability to to program or to do graphics or or whatever. Um, the the um, mobile phone industry is a new industry, so you're not going to find lots of people that have lots of experience. Mm-hmm. So we might as well start from scratch. It's I, I think it's for for me and my way of thinking, it's easier to get somebody fresh out of school and teach them how to program mobile phones than to take somebody who's who used to make like Nintendo games or PlayStation games and try to change his way of working to fit uh, uh, you know the mobile phone. It's like it's like retraining a uh, 747 pilot to fly an F-16. You, you're better off getting somebody who doesn't know how to fly to fly an F-16 than a, you know, a big pilot because it's a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, young guys and, well, it's not just guys, but guys and girls uh, have a lot of energy, a lot of passion to, uh, for what they do. And, uh, well, it's worked. So what are you concentrating on that's going to keep these employees in your company better? Uh, we watch all the other, we test not only our own games, we test the other games from the other companies. And we regularly get together and say, okay, what, what do we have to do to make our games better than the other games? Mm-hmm. It's just a, keeping your eye on the ball and making sure that you're competitive and a little bit better than everybody else. Um, we have uh, developed technology internally uh, that, that gives us an unfair advantage over the other guys. But that's what it's about. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, what can we do to get an unfair advantage? And we'll take anything we can get. Hmm. Maybe it's a fair advantage rather than an unfair advantage because we just developed business, it, right? You know, yeah, yeah, right. You got to you got to stay ahead of the game, yeah. and that's interesting because you can probably almost do this anywhere. Then you could take developers from. I mean, you could do it in the Philippines if you want, or you could even do it in India, but you chose to do it in Hawaii. Well, um, yes and no. You can, you can get the programming talent uh, in China, for example. Uh-huh. But the the difference is they don't think like we do, inter- and they don't understand what's fun to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say us, I'm talking about the American consumer. Our our target consumer is the American consumer, and so uh, if you try to make games, and I've tried this before, uh, for example, in Moscow, you get games that are technologically amazing, but they're just not fun mm-hmm. because they don't understand what fun is mm-hmm. by our definition. What they think is cute and funny looking looks dumb to us, mm-hmm. and so that's a cultural difference. And um, so you can't really to, to create content, and and half of the job is to create interesting. It's like making a movie. Uh, half of it is having a good story and having graphics and, and and characters that appeal to your target audience. Stay tuned for more on Sports Radio fourteen twenty. How do you sell his company to Akamai Technologies for three billion dollars? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who donates 6% of sales to make more money? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. How do you get 100 stores and 100 million in sales in less than 10 years? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. Who raised $50,000 in a few weeks for the tsunami relief? Find out at greatergoodradio.com. And all while benefiting the community. Greatergoodradio.com. What does coaching have to do with running a business? Welcome to the Money Minute from Central Pacific Bank. Today we're talking with Sherry Lee, commercial banker. Whenever we hear the word coach, 
We usually think of the folks who teach our kids soccer or baseball or some other sport. But coaches aren't just for kids. There are business coaches out there who can help you guide your company. Like a soccer coach providing motivation to a team, a good business coach can energize you with new ideas and new growth strategies. That includes analyzing industry trends and developing your network of contacts. Most importantly, a business coach can provide you with an objective outside opinion, free from the emotions that come with being an owner. Just like in sports, good coaching may be just what you need for your business to win consistently. Today's Money Minute is brought to you by Central Pacific Bank, where you'll always find bankers that are fiercely loyal to you. Central Pacific Bank, member FDIC. This is Gail Jennings from HawaiiDiner.com and EverybodyEats.org. I read selectively all of the papers, but I tend to read more of the columns at Star Bulletin. A lot of it is I like Erica Engel. I like her column, The Buzz. I get good information from that. I like their coverage of the different issues. I like the Star Bulletin. Would you recommend other people to read Star Bulletin? Absolutely. I think we need to be as informed as possible. Star Bulletin. This is Jim Tollefson, President and CEO of the Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii. I definitely would recommend the Chamber of Commerce to others. The benefits are that you get to meet other businesses, get to work together with other businesses, and help you improve your business to make more money to be successful. If you're not a member already, you can give me a call, 545-4300, extension 388. I invite you to join us in creating a better Hawaii, a Hawaii that's better for us, for our children, and for the future. Listening to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to the promotion and implementation of social entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Hank Rogers, the owner of Blue Planet Software, which controls the rights to the video game Tetris. Hank sold his company Blue Lava Wireless in April 2005 to Jamdat for $137 million. He's here today to share with us how he achieved financial success at such an early age. So Act 221 or 215 as it's called now with the state of Hawaii, how do you think that's impacted your business? Big time. You know, I, I basically, that was my excuse for being able to start it in Hawaii at all. Um, the idea was uh, I, I was going to start my business and my attorney uh, says, uh, says to me, hey, you, you, this is your chance to start in Hawaii again because I've done it so many times. This is your chance to start in Hawaii, and this time it's going to work. Um, I said, why? Said, well, Act 221. The way it works is for every dollar that you invest in a qualified high-tech business, you get a dollar tax credit. And so it's going to be easier for you to raise money. In practical, the way it works is you get some investor coming up with, say, $10 million. And uh, then the Hawaii, uh, the Hawaii investors who are looking for the tax credit come up with the other $10 million. So... The California or the, the, the outside investor gets $20 million worth of investment, and the Hawaii investor gets $20 million worth of tax credit. So both sides get two for the price of one. And so it's a, re, it's a win-win situation on both sides. 
So when I started the company, I was expecting I was going to need uh, a bunch of investment because, you know, as as you put money into the company, uh, it takes time to become profitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so usually you need money, you need uh, investment to uh, to last until you become profitable. We were fortunate in that the money that I put into the, my wife and I put into the company in the first place was enough to last until we became profitable. Huh. So that I mean, we became profitable very quickly. So you didn't off. even need to have outside investors at that point. We never took out outside investors, uh, but that's not the only place where Act Two Two One helps. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we if you create an intellectual property, like uh, if we create a new a new piece of software and we sell it around the world, when you sell it and the money that comes back, it's not taxed in Hawaii. So. You know, there's a lot of companies that have to set up places, tax-free places like Nevada or whatever, so that they can make that extra money. Mm-hmm. But but by eliminating that particular tax, it gives us a chance to do it in Hawaii as well. So there's there's that. And then the other one is uh, called capital gains. Mm-hmm. When you sell your company at the end of the day, uh, you pay tax on the difference between the price that you that you put the money up and what you got. So the money that I put into the company... Minus what I sold it for, or the, what I sold it for minus what I put up in the in the beginning, I have to pay capital gains on all the rest. No state of Hawaii capital gains on an Act Two to One company, so that's huge too. Mm-hmm. Just well, calculate it's eight percent. It's like eight uh, percent uh, capital gains. It's fifteen percent uh, national capital gain, uh, U.S. and then eight uh, percent Hawaii. The eight percent just calculate eight percent times one hundred thirty-seven million. That's, that's how much money. That's how much money I I, I saved on the exit. Mm-hmm. So even though I didn't take adve- investment, I, I made a lot of money on the on the exit. So uh, would I do it again? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, do I advise other people to do it all the time? I think this is a great opportunity to, to take Hawaii from being the center of uh, military and uh, uh, tourists uh, to being a high tech center. Uh, creating intellectual property. An- another thing that that helped in the state of Hawaii was the Manoa Innovation Center as well. H- how did that help you guys? Well, it's not my first time at the Manoa Innovation oh, Center. Yeah, okay. This is the second company I started uh-huh. at the Manoa Innovation Center. And yes, it's very nice. And uh, when you're real small trying to get started, it's it's uh, it really helps because they provide you with a lot of services. Um, Blue Lava Wireless wasn't my first company, so I you know as it turns out, a lot of those services like uh, intellectual property lawyers, for example, or business planners, or marketing, or PR, uh, those kind of services that come with the innovation center uh, that really help for fledgling companies. Well, I, I kind of knew my way around that stuff because I'd done it before. So for me, it wasn't that big of a help. But the other thing I like about the Manoa Innovation Center is its proximity to the University of Hawaii. And they have a bus that comes up to well, feed the teacher housing across the street. So all my students, and I have a lot of <clears throat> testers who are still students. And they come up with the bus, and uh, so that's very convenient. You're listening to Greater Good Radio Hawaii, where we develop tomorrow's leaders by bringing you up close and personal with today's top business people. Greater Good Radio Hawaii is dedicated to the promotion and implementation of social entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Hank Rogers, the owner of Blue Planet Software, which controls the rights to the video game Tetris. Hank sold his company, Blue Lava Wireless, in April 2005 to Jamdat for $137 million. 
He's here today to share with us how he achieved financial success at such an early age. The story of Tetris is kind of legendary, and, and when you look on the internet and you see different versions, are, are we able to hear what your version was when you initially um, went up oh there goodness, and got the rights? That's a long story. That's a whole oh. radio show all by itself. The, the, original, uh, ver- the original Tetris game was made by Alexei Pajdanov on a machine called Electronica 60, which is the equivalent of a PDP-11. It's a dinosaur computer that doesn't even... I mean, it existed in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an 8-bit computer. Anyway, I'm not going to bore you with all the details. The, that was the original game. And then uh, he got some young programmer to move it over to the IBM PC, which is the only other computer they had access to in, in, uh, in Moscow. And when it came out, and you say, which is the original version, there's a lot of different people who say, well, I have the original version of Tetris. Uh, Nintendo Game Boy, because of uh, the 35 million units sold, is probably the most commonly uh, thought of as the original version, but it's not. It's... There are, there are a few versions that preceded the, the, uh, the Game Boy version, and Tetris had changed a lot by the time it got to the Game Boy. Uh, th- probably the, the first one was uh, Electronica 60. The second one was the, uh, the PC in Russia. The third one was Spectrum Holobyte uh, in the U.S. And there's a couple of versions put up by Mirosoft in, in Europe, but they, uh, that company disappeared, and they weren't, they weren't very successful with it. But Spectrum Holobyte was. Then there's um, the version that uh, my company in Japan at the time, called Bulletproof Software, uh, created for Nintendo 8-bit, and we were the publishers. Um, there's that version, and based on that version, Nintendo created the Game Boy version. So that was created internally by Nintendo. That's the next version. Um, about the same time in Japan, uh, Sega came up with a uh, coin-op version. Coin up meaning an arcade machine, mm-hmm. and that was very popular. So all of these versions are all different, and they're all you know depending on who you are. You grew up on some version of Tetris back then, and say, well, this is the this is the right version of Tetris. And when you switch over, it's like switching over between a car with the gasoline on the right side and then the gasoline on the right on the left side and the brake on the right side. You know, it's it's impossible to play when you switch those things. You know, so. Finally, we've, since we've taken control of, of the IP, uh, Tetris informed the Tetris company in 1996, we have standardized the user interface so that the brake's always on the right, and the, <laughs> uh, sorry, the brake's always on the left, and the gas fill's always on the right. All the buttons are where you expect them to be. So it seemed to be scattered ownership before, and then different versions, and then you consolidated everything? Is that what it, happened? The, the or did you own them all? The ownership was with the Soviet Union in the old days, okay. up until 1995. Uh, and so, well, until the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and then it, then it became a little murky what happened to the ownership. As with everything that was owned by, by the Soviet Union, uh, but um, we believe that the rights to Tetris reverted to the author of Tetris, uh, Alexei Pajitnov. And mm-hmm. uh, Alexei made a deal with me. He said, Hank, you, you need to help me uh, make money out of this because the, you know, the, so the leftovers of the Soviet Union are never going to share any of it with me. So uh, basically, you know, I brought him to the States, we became good friends, and uh, he's still my partner today. Huh. But in the beginning, when you first uh, got the rights for Tetris and you flew to the Soviet Union, how, how old were you at that time? No, gosh, uh, 1989, February, so that's 21, no, that's uh, 16 years ago. 16... 35? 
Yeah, I was 35. So at 35, was it kind of like a you know, like a cowboy? It's like, I'm going there and I'm going to go ahead and get this? Or you, you already had negotiations set up? No, I had no idea who I was going to meet. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't know... I didn't know anything. I did, basically, I just got on a plane and said, I'm going to figure it out once I get there. And had you ever been to Soviet Union before? No. Oh. I had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, I just got on a plane. I got on a plane as a tourist. And, uh, you know, when I got there, I, I, it's like an adventure game. I <laughs> asked, tried to ask people for help. I sort of landed in, in Moscow not knowing anything about anything. Um, my basic plan You went was, by yourself then, just you? Yeah, I just went by myself. Um, my basic plan was to make a friend that was going to help me find my way around. I play a Japanese board game called Go. Mm -hmm. So I figured if I could find the Russian Go Association, I would find a friend. Because, you know, you have something in common. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I spent the day... Actually, I spent the day tracking down the uh, Russian Go Federation which is part of the Olympic Committee building, whatever. Anyway, there was nobody there. Mm -hmm. uh, I found out where Go players play Go, and that's at a chess club called Shachmat, which is Checkmate. And uh, that was the biggest uh, chess club in Moscow. So I went there. And yes, there was somebody who I could play Go with. And this guy was like the third strongest Go player in, uh, in Russia mm -hmm. or in the Soviet Union. So I played Go with him. And uh, that was interesting the only part was that he didn't speak any English at all. Did so you we beat him? Communicate. I won that game, too. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I won that game, but it's like, so what? Uh -huh. uh, so I, all that effort uh, of finding somebody, finding Go players, I, turned out to be a dud because I cause Could couldn't find anybody who could speak English. Uh -huh. um, uh, I ended up hiring an interpreter. There, there was interpreter services in the, in the lobby of the hotel. Mm -hmm. And you know, looking back on it, she has to have been KGB. Mm -hmm. You know, th that's how they get. That's how they get through to uh, to all the people that come to uh, Moscow. Anyway, uh, she knew everything about everything. Mm -hmm. I had a. I had a. Uh, I hired an interpreter and I hired a driver, and we found the uh, the institute. Uh, I mean the Elektronorg uh, Technika, uh, which is the um, the uh, organization which had the right to be able to sell software outside the Soviet Union. Nobody else did. You know, everything was done by ministries because it's, it's, there's no companies at this point. How'd you even know that's where you had to go? Did you know that's um, where? The copyright notice said Elorg. Oh, okay. Or Electronic Technica. So that's the copyright notice that I'd gotten previously from, from uh, on boxes of Tetris. Uh, that's my, my only hint. And I knew that they were in Moscow. So I had an idea of what, what I was supposed to do, but... Uh, yeah, it was really exciting. It was a game. That's like a real life RPG. It was a real life RPG, and and I remember the first the the, the first meeting. Well, I was in the lobby of this building, and the guy came down and uh, he said, "Mr. Rogers." Uh, oh, you spoke I'm, English? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Mr. Rogers, I'm you know I'm blah blah blah, and uh, what do you want? You know, <laughs> I said, "Well, I'm the publisher of Tetris in Japan." I showed him the box of my Nintendo Tetris. I'm the publisher of Tetris in Japan and I'm looking for the Game Boy rights. So I'd like to arrange a meeting with somebody tomorrow to talk about these rights. And he looked at the box and he says, we never licensed the rights to Tetris on this console to anybody. So I, and I said like, oh my God. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's like, oh. 
So anyway, uh, can I meet? I said, can can we meet tomorrow? Because I figured uh, if I just walked in, they wouldn't have the right people lined up, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be a very interesting meeting. I wouldn't wanted to give them a chance to get everything together. Later on, it turns out, you know, the KGB grilled him. How did you get this guy to come to your office? Because you know, he says, no, he just walked out the street. Mm-hmm. No, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. They 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 put him on the point. Because they figured I'm the one who got him, or he's the one who got me to come there. Uh-huh. Because he's not supposed to contact anybody without KGB clearance. Mm-hmm. Can you believe this? I mean, this is so ridiculous. They actually have a little guy with a little hat who writes down everybody's name who comes and goes in that building, and that goes reported back to the KGB. So he was questioned on it. It was very strange. But anyway, the next day, I had a room full of people, and I, w- I went there for that meeting. Um... Alexei Pajanov was one of the one of the people in that meeting. All of them are suspicious. I mean, it's like a, it's uh-huh. like if a uh, uh, Chinese company that pirates your game in China came to you and wanted to talk to you. Mm-hmm. So you know you're going to have your lawyers there. You're going to have all these questions. So I had a room full of people giving me the third degree. And just you, just me. Is it maybe ten people or? Yeah, it was ten, uh-huh. uh, easily ten people, and they were uh-huh. all like questioning me, and then they would argue with each other in Russian, and they'd look at me and then mm-hmm. they'd ask me more questions. And basically, I said, look, you know, I'm just a simple businessman. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Mm-hmm. This is how the business works. You know, we don't have any secrets. Mm-hmm. This, is how we, this is how we do business. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the end, um, they, they, uh, at the end I ma- I'd managed to diffuse the whole, you know, situation. And uh, they said, well, um, can you make us an offer in writing? And by the way, ne- when's the next time you're coming to Russia or Soviet Union? I said, what do you mean? Said, well, you know, we would like to have some time to think it over. And I said, you don't understand how business works. I'm here now. I'm ready to make a deal. If I leave, it means that either we have a deal or we have no deal. But I'm not coming back to find out if we have a deal or not. Mm-hmm. Um, were, well, you, were you, were you kind of in your stomach like, uh-oh? No, I was, or, just, or I was just going for it. At this uh-huh. point, I was just going for it. And uh, um, I... Um, uh, they asked me to write a, a letter, so I wrote a I, I wrote a letter, and uh, it, it, I tried to make it sound as legalese as possible. <laughs> it says this uh, this uh, offer is good for one week, and uh, if you don't take this offer uh, within a week, then it's <laughs> null and void, and the terms and conditions of this deal are to be confidential. And you know, I use all these big words. You mean, hand wrote it? No, no, no. I oh, had a computer okay, with okay. a little little printer. Uh-huh. I had all my stuff there. So yeah, I uh, I did all that. And it was it was pretty interesting. And a week later, it turns out I got the Game Boy rights. Huh. So you stayed in Russia that whole time waiting. for Yeah, you. I you know I I said I wasn't. I told my guys in Japan that I wasn't coming back till I got the rights. <laughs> <laughs> so. That's cool. Actually, let's talk a little bit more about that in the after show. Yeah. But one interesting thing is that your almost your social mission for your company here locally is to have, you know, Hawaii-based people uh, working for the company. The company is staying in Hawaii. And, and to help out Hawaii in general. Can, can you talk a little bit more about how that came about or what your philosophy on that is? Well, you know, I, I came here in uh, 1972, I guess, and I went to uh, University of Hawaii. And at the time, uh, you know, it was very cheap for me to go. As, I wasn't a U.S. citizen. I was a Dutch citizen. Okay. It was very cheap for me to go to University of Hawaii, and I used to drive Charlie's taxi at night and do all kinds of weird jobs. <laughs> Uh, to make money to go to school. And uh, so I've, I've 
the way I look at it is Hawaii gave me the chance to become what I've become. And uh, so I feel that I owe Hawaii something for that, for having made me what I am today. And uh, helping other students is a way, f- the way I look at it, as a way for me to pay it forward. Um, and I, I believe that Hawaii can be a, a center, just like Singapore has you know, become a center for, for hardware, uh, we can become a center for software because we have um, the, uh, how can I say, the influence from all of the Asian countries and from the mainland in, right here in Hawaii. We're able to converse in all those languages and have all those uh, ways of looking at things. So I think Hawaii is the perfect place to do it. And Hawaii, you know, I, I really feel Hawaii is my home now. And uh, so I'd like to be able to see, say that I was part of making Hawaii into this new blossoming of in, uh, intellectual property creator, uh, you know, kind of like a Silicon Valley, a Silicon Island, or a, mm-hmm. we have to, maybe we have to think of a new, a new word here. But it almost seems like, especially with the success of the Jamdat acquisition of uh, Blue Lava Wireless, that gets people's attention. So, you know, we applaud your efforts, and it's, it's amazing, and we appreciate your time. We want to thank Hank Rogers for joining us today on Greater Good Radio Hawaii. We appreciate your amazing success story and the experiences that you've shared with us, and we hope that you join us again. For you listeners out there, please join us for the after show portion where Hank Rogers will share with us more insight into selling his company for $137 million. If you're interested in Hank's knowledge and the inside story of more successful entrepreneurs, please go to our website, greatergoodradio.com, and listen to the after shows. This is your host, Evan Leong and Carrie Leong, saying please join us next time for another episode of Greater Good Radio Hawaii. Please stay tuned to Sports Radio 1420 for another intriguing episode of Greater Good Radio Hawaii.